Uh, during my time off, I came across the results of a survey that uh, were very, very surprising to me. Chapman University, uh, it's a private, private college in uh, California, conducted a poll uh, just last year about American fears. And in that poll, they found 75% of the people polled said, believe it or not, that they believed in paranormal activity. 75%. Over half said that they believe in ghosts and places that can be haunted. Uh, Over a third believe that aliens have visited the earth. And a quarter of respondents believe that aliens have visited the earth in modern times. 25% of people believe that people can move objects with their minds. But what really caught me off guard about this survey was that only 5% claimed to have, quote, seen a monster in the closet of their bedroom, end quote. And that seemed very low to me. And then I realized what the problem was. Everybody knows that ghosts don't hide in closets. They hide under the bed. And so if they would have asked that question right, it would have been, the statistics would have been much higher, right? Seriously, the thing, though, that surprised me so much about this survey is that after 300 years of being told that everything in the world can be explained naturally, people still believe in things like the paranormal and the supernatural. And you don't have to look any further than the things that we entertain ourselves with, things like uh, The Walking Dead, uh, the Netflix show, Stranger Things, American Horror Story, The Vampire Diaries, Harry Potter, The Santa Clarita Diet. It's another Netflix uh, show. Some of you guys are old enough to remember the original uh, television show, Bewitched. I've only seen the reruns, but some of you have seen the original of that. Maybe you remember Casper, the friendly ghosts, Ouija boards. You can probably think of other things like that. But in spite of 300 years of teaching otherwise, people still persist with this belief that there are things that cannot be explained naturally. And, of course, the Bible supports that view. Uh, Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, that verse, of course, is talking about demonic activity in the world. Well, this morning, we're, we're going to begin a series called The Ghost. But it's not demonic beings that we're going to be uh, looking at throughout this series. We're going to be looking at a being far more powerful than the demonic. And I'm referring to Christianity's belief in what many people grew up calling the Holy Ghost. Uh, More commonly these days referred to as the Holy Spirit. In some churches, it's fascinating because in some churches, the Holy Spirit is talked about all of the time. And then in other churches, mostly conservative evangelical churches, the Holy Spirit is almost never talked about. And maybe that's because we think too much focus on the Holy Spirit is dangerous. Maybe it's because we think it will lead to certain excesses. But that's throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwash because without the Holy Spirit, we can never individually or collectively experience the transformation that we talk about in the vision statement over here on the wall. We want to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that can only happen with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes this clear 
in a passage that we're going to start this series off with this morning in John chapter 3. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me in it to the Gospel of John chapter 3. If you're new to City Church, it's okay if you don't have a Bible, but for those of you who are regulars, you know that you should have a Bible of some kind, whether it's a hard copy or whether it's a digital copy, it's fine, but we just want to make sure that you bring a Bible so that you can follow along. Now, John chapter 3 records a very private, it's almost like a cloak and dagger conversation between a very powerful religious leader in Israel and Jesus himself. The conversation happened at a time that Jesus' popularity was on the rise It happened during the Passover, which was an enormous holiday in Israel. Everyone in Israel, including Jesus, left their small towns and their villages, and they made their way to the capital city, Jerusalem, where the temple was located. And they went for this enormous celebration that was commemorating how God had rescued their ancestors from the Egyptian people. In fact, the Jewish people still celebrate the Passover every year. So you've got an enormous amount of people in Jerusalem who were hearing about Jesus. Uh, Some of them witnessed his miracles. Some of them saw, uh, excuse me, or heard his teaching. Some of them saw his confrontations with the religious establishment in Israel. And so everyone was buzzing about Jesus, about who he was, about about what he was in Jerusalem for. Uh, Is he the promised Messiah that we've been waiting for? Has he come to liberate Israel from Roman rule? Who is he? What's he about? That was the question. But this popularity, along with his confrontations with the religious leaders, made him extremely controversial. So much so, in fact, that, well, I'll tell you what, let me just, let's read the passage, and I think you'll see what I mean when I say that he was controversial. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the uh, Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Can you see how controversial Jesus was that this powerful religious leader comes to him only under the cover of darkness? That's how controversial Jesus is. He was scared. Now, some of you who have some familiarity with the Bible might be surprised that Nicodemus would come and talk to Jesus at all. You might say, well, I thought all of the Pharisees were uh, the bad guys, uh, negative and narrow and dogmatic and hostile. Well, the answer is yes, most of them were. But Nicodemus really genuinely seems very different. Here's a guy who combines all of the moral rectitude an intellectual depth of the Pharisees with a teachable openness. And he seems to come to Jesus because he genuinely wants to learn. The text says that he's a member of the court, the council, the Sanhedrin, which means he was a man of tremendous wealth and power. Nicodemus is a guy who's got it all together. He's got biblical knowledge. He's got religious understanding. He's got intellectual depth. He's got intellectual power. He's civic-minded. I mean, he's on the court. He's wise. He's open. He's wealthy. And you say, well, why, why would he be so frightened about talking to Jesus that he would only do so under the cover of night? And the answer is, it's because he's got a lot to lose. 
Some of the most fear-filled people I know are people who are wealthy and powerful because once you have it, it's a huge adjustment to lose it. But I still, I still want to give him credit that he came to Jesus at all. And I want you to notice how Jesus replies to Nicodemus in verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This feels very much like a non sequitur. Nicodemus says, hey, it's, it's clear that you're from God because of the miracles that you do. To which Jesus replies, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Those two statements don't really seem to go together very naturally. It feels like that there needs to be some other things in there to connect those two uh, statements. But I think if you take the context into consideration, I think Jesus' reply makes a little more sense. Nicodemus has come to Jesus only under the cover of night. Maybe Jesus is just accommodating Nicodemus' fear, and so he just cuts to the chase. I've got a businessman friend who, uh, who calls this going, he, he says, he, he always calls it, he says, I'm going to go one, two, ten on you. And for years, I didn't, he's a good friend of mine. For years, I didn't know what he, would, what he meant by that. I just nod my head because I thought, well, every, everybody must know this. He's at one, two, ten. And what I finally realized is what he was saying is I don't have time to do the whole thing. So I'm going to go one, two, and I don't have time for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and I'm just going to go to ten. I'm going to cut to the chase, all right? So I think maybe that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, listen, Nick, we don't have much time. So let me just go one, two, ten on you. Dude, you need to be born again. Born again. And it's so ironic that of all of the theological terms that Christians use, this is the one, born again, that's come down into modern jargon. Most people in the world, I mean, even if they don't know what it means, most people have some familiarity with this phrase, born again. And let's face it, I think most people really don't have a positive view of what it means to be born again. For some people, it means, some people, if you say, well, what does that mean? Well, they, they probably say something cynical, um, that it means to be, uh, have some big emotional experience. Maybe it came through a rough time in your life. That's what it means to be born again. Some people would say, well, it means to be part of some uh, evangelical, uh, dogmatic, narrow-minded group of religious people. Maybe that's what they would say. I had a guy on a golf course one time who who, uh, asked me after he learned that I'm a pastor, he he said, you're not one of those born-again types, are you? Clearly, in his mind, it wasn't a good thing. And I think that's true with a lot of people. As a way of introducing this new series, I want to show you this morning what Jesus meant by that term, born again. Because the term born again and the Holy Spirit are inexorably related. And I don't want to assume that anyone here knows anything necessarily about the Holy Spirit. I'm sure some of you do, but I don't want to assume that. I want to, I want to take you from the very beginning. And I want to show you what it means when Jesus says born again. And I want to show you how that affects your understanding of the Holy Spirit. And here's how I'm going to do this. Here's my outline for the next few minutes. I'm going to talk about the necessity of being born again. That's number one. I'm going to talk about the meaning of being born again. That's number two. And then I want to talk about why it's so hard to be born again. So the necessity of being born again, the meaning of born again, and then why it's so hard 
to be born again. And of course, let's start with the necessity of being born again. Jesus says in verse 3 that no one can enter the kingdom of God. And what's the word that he says next? Unless he is born again. Now, can I be candid with you guys for just a minute? Uh, I have like a lifelong hatred of the word unless. I have always hated that word. When I was a kid, my mom would say, you can't go out to play unless you do your homework. Go to some government office for something simple, and they'll say, sir, we can't, we can't do that, or we can't process that, or we can't stamp that unless you have filled out these forms, waited 90 days, prayed to the sun gods, brought inescapable proof of your birth, residency in the United States, and your blood type. Unless always means that something is getting in the way. My wife will say to me about projects that I want to take on around the house. You can't start that project unless you get someone who knows what they're doing to help you. I don't like the word unless. It's a categorical word. It's a a requirement that you can't get around. And Jesus says, you can't. He says to Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless, there it is, you are born again. And see, our over-familiarity with the phrase born again, I think it dilutes our understanding of just how completely Nicodemus, uh, his, how, his, how completely his circuits were blown by this. First, he'd never heard the phrase before. I mean, like you've heard the phrase. He'd never heard it before. What would you think first time you heard it, born again? But second, Nicodemus is rich and he's powerful. Rich and powerful people don't often hear the phrase, you can't unless. Like They don't hear that phrase very often, or at least they don't hear it in a way that they can't somehow get around. And then they also don't get the truth told to them very often. And in Nicodemus' case, you can imagine that all of his life people have told him things like, Oh, you're such a good boy. And then when he became an adult, you're such a good man. You know, the best. He was straight A's, valedictorian, most likely to see blue chipper, the cream of the crop, and he has an impeccable spiritual resume to go with it. And then Jesus drops this truth bomb on him. Nick, all of that stuff, it means nothing to God. You're so broken You're so lost. Your life is such a mess that the only way to fix your life is just to start over. You need to be born again. And can you imagine how that must have hit him? A man who strived all of his life to do all of the right things, to do the best thing, who's devoted himself to the practice of religion, How must that have hit him? I think you'll see in his reply that his categories are completely blown and his circuits are fried. He says, I think this is one of the funniest things in the Bible. Every time I preach this, nobody laughs. So I don't think you'll think it's funny, but I think it's really funny. Verse 4, he says, How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And What I think is so funny about that is here is this learned man who thinks that Jesus is literally talking about somehow climbing back into his mother's womb. But Jesus is patient with Nicodemus' question, verse 5. 
Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Verse six, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And there it is again. If Jesus, if Nicodemus didn't get it the first time, there it is again, the necessity of being born again. You must be born again. And I hope you notice this, that when Jesus says this, he's not just talking to Nicodemus. He's saying this to you too. You, you, you must be born again. You see, I don't know what you think about this phrase, born again. You may have really negative ideas about what it means, but you need to understand something. There are not born-again Christians and then not born-again Christians. That's not the way it works. There are only born-again Christians and then people who are not Christians, you see. Jesus is saying, you must be born Again, that's the necessity of being born again. Now, I want to explain what Jesus means by this. What's the meaning of born again? And to explain that, what I want to do is I want to focus on this phrase in verse 6, where Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Because in this, we'll get an understanding not only of what Jesus meant by being born again, but we'll also get an understanding of why the Holy Spirit is so significant in the process of human transformation. And I'm going to ask you to do two things for me. First, I'm going to ask you to just try to really hang with me for a moment because this is really, really critical that you understand this, and we're going to have to do a little spade work to understand this. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. But also, I'm going to show you some graphics in a few moments that are uh, self-made graphics, and I am not a graphic artist. So I'm going to ask you to not laugh at my graphic art when you see it, all right? Can you promise me that? Okay. Somebody, somebody up, in, up uh, in the balcony went, oh. I hope you promise me. Don't laugh at my graphic art. Okay. I want to start by, let's mentally turn back the calendar. I want to go back even further than the first, this first century AD conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. And, I, and as I said, I want to go all the way back to the creation of the world. The Bible says at the creation of the world that God created everything that exists. He spoke and light comes into being. He speaks and plant life comes into being. He speaks and animals come into being. Now look, I understand that people have all different kinds of theories about how exactly this happened and how long it took. But I want to save that for another day and another conversation. What I want you to know today is that when God created humanity, two things happened that didn't happen when he created all of the other forms of life. The first is that God tells us the purpose for which he created humanity, something he never did with plants and animals. And I'm just going to read this to you. It comes from Genesis chapter 1. You don't need to turn, your, turn in your Bibles there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made 
to rule over the earth, meaning that we were to be God's delegated trustees, his caretakers, if you will, over the earth and all that's in it. And as his delegated trustees, he created us to rule over the earth in the same benevolent way that God would. Now, that's a huge job. I mean, that's really, as it is, how would you say that we're doing uh, as a uh, planet, as a humanity, about taking care of the world that we live in? How, are you, how would you say that we're doing? Not a very good job, right? It's a huge job. At the very least, to even consider doing that job, human beings would need powers like uh, intellect and valuation and conceptualization and communication and the ability to relate to one another. And we need a measure of freedom too because if we're gonna be like God, God isn't a puppet. We can't, we can't be like puppets then either, right? So God gave human beings those powers and to help make this clear, here's a graphic that uh, I put together. This is not, that's not a bad graphic. And uh, I, I'm calling those powers those very basic powers, I'm calling those lower powers, and I'll show you why in just a minute. Calling those lower powers. And here's why I'm calling them lower powers. To rule the world in the way that God uh, would rule the world, there was something else that we would need besides those lower powers. And let me just reduce it down to something simple to illustrate it. Uh, Put two boys in a room. I don't care what their ages are. Let's say 13 and 11. Uh, Put two boys in a room, give them one PlayStation and one remote control. What will happen? Peace, love, harmony will all break out, right? No, 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 of course not. There will be war. There will be chaos. There will be destruction. At some point, probably the PlayStation will get broken, right? Much like the earth has its own uh, set of environmental problems. What's the only way that you could get two boys and one PlayStation and one remote control to work together in harmony? What's the only way? Put them on a morphine drip. That's the only way. No, no, no. See, the problem is that the lower powers aren't enough. To equip humanity to use their lower powers in a way that would be unifying and benevolent and gracious in the way that God would, you would somehow have to put God inside of humanity. And that's precisely what God did with humanity at the beginning of creation. And that's the second thing that happens that's different from all of his other acts of creation. I'll read it to you. Again, the Lord God, this is chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis. Again, you don't need to turn there. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, this phrase, breath of life, it's not talking about oxygen. It's not oxygen. Later in the New Testament, there's this scene where Jesus breathes on his disciples and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so you see at creation, when God breathes into their nostrils the breath of life, God is putting his very life, his very spirit into human beings. And you can see that uh, represented in this next graphic that we're going to put up. And again, this is one that I made. Uh, The spirit of God is radiating 
the light and the life of God on the lower powers, the basic things that we all have to have to live. The Spirit of God is radiating the light and the life of God on those lower powers so that each of us would use our lower powers in a way that would be good and benevolent and that would bless God's creation. He's shining the life and the light of God on those lower powers. That's why, by the way, the graphic is in yellow because he's shining light. See how that works? Okay. Now, everything's fine. Adam and Eve, they've got now the lower powers they need and they've got the higher power that they need in the spirit of God right in them. Everything is, everything's groovy at this point, right? Until Adam and Eve decided that they didn't need God after all. And they disobeyed him. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit left the building. And sure, their lower powers were still there. But you can see again in this next graphic, their lower powers had been darkened. There is no Spirit of God radiating light and life on those powers. And so man's intellect and communication skills and his freedom and all of the other lower powers, they end up getting used in a way that is wrong and distorted and selfish and greedy. And what's fascinating is that Genesis 3 records this moment when the Holy Spirit leaves Adam and Eve. And guess what chapter records the very first murder in all of human history? The very next chapter. Chapter 4. In chapter 3, they disobey, and the Holy Spirit leaves the building. And in chapter 4, the first murder occurs. And then chapters later, wars after wars after wars. Now, see, here's the thing. You know, I put all of that up there, and you say, okay, that's interesting. Maybe you even say that it's helpful. The problem is, You and I don't know, uh, we don't know that we're living in the dark. Like we don't know that all of our lower powers have been darkened and that the light and the life of God isn't in us. We don't know we're missing the spirit of God. We're like fish who have no idea that there's life outside of water because we've never experienced that. We have no idea what it would be like to be alive in the way that Adam and Eve were because every single human being born after Adam and Eve has been born into the world with nothing of the light and the life of God in us. And this is what the Bible means when it calls us flesh. It's not talking about skin and bones, not usually at least. It's talking about the fact that we're just flesh just the lower powers. The life and the light of God is not in us. No Holy Spirit. We're just flesh. And this is what Jesus meant when he said that flesh gives birth to flesh. We're born into this world in a very real sense as the walking dead. Our lower power still largely intact but no higher power to govern it and to shine the light and the life of God into us. 
And when there's no higher power to govern it, we will always use those powers selfishly. Now, again, if you don't believe that, just look at the mess that, the, that we've made of the world. We are an intelligent people, but look at the evil ways that we find to distort technology. Look at the unnecessary bloodshed throughout history. Look at the wars and the greediness and the power battles. Look at our fascination with sex and violence and how we pervert them. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's all it can do. Back to Nicodemus now. He's a very religious, very smart dude, but he's just flesh. But you argue, you, you say, well, wait a minute. Surely he discredits this need to be born again because he's religious without being born again. He's a moral good man. Yes, but all of that is for self-glorification. It's still a way of saying, just like Adam and Eve did, look, God, I don't need you. I can reform myself. And when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he has to be born again, he's saying, look, Nick, you can dress up a pig all you want, but it's still a pig. And you can dress up human flesh all you want with religious robes and Bible knowledge and with outwardly moral and spiritual behavior, but it's still just flesh. You are the walking dead, Nick, and you need to be born again. And that's a level of honesty that I suspect Nicodemus had never, ever heard in his life. But, but do you understand that it wasn't honesty to brutalize Nicodemus. It wasn't honesty to bash Nicodemus. It was honesty to point him to hope. Which is why Jesus adds in verse 6, not only does flesh give birth to flesh, but then he says, spirit gives birth to spirit. And in this, what Jesus is suggesting is that there is a way that Nicodemus could be made alive, that the Spirit of God could be put in him. Put that graphic back up there on the screen. And this is what it means to be born again, that the Spirit of God is placed back in a human being. And the light in the life of God is radiating all over all of those lower powers. And no, it doesn't require that Nicodemus would have to climb back into his mother's womb. It's being made alive, not in a lower power kind of way, but in a way that the light and the life of God would be put in him. But that kind of birth requires something supernatural to happen. You can't do it yourself. God would have to breathe the breath of life into Nicodemus and into you, just like he did for Adam and Eve. And then and only then, you would come alive you would be born again. This time, not of flesh, but of the spirit. And that's what it means to be born again, to, re- to receive by an act of God's grace, the breathing in of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus says that if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again, all right? That's what it means to be born again, that the spirit of God is placed inside of you. Because you're born into the world, darkened and dead. All right, that's the meaning. Now, here's the thing I want to close with, and it's why it's so hard to be born again. Because on the surface, I have to tell you, I find myself asking the question, why wouldn't everyone want to be born again? Like, it seems so logical. Why wouldn't everyone 
once they realize that all that they've been born with are these lower powers, but, the, but there is no higher power, that they're not complete, that they're darkened, it seems like an obvious thing that everyone would want the higher powers of God's very life in them. Doesn't everyone want to be alive? Doesn't everyone want to live life to its fullest? That frankly seems like a pretty easy sell to me. But it's not. And the reason that it's so hard to be born again is because it's offensive to be told that you're such a mess. That there is this enormous chasm between you and the God who created you. It is offensive to be told that your life is so broken that in a religious sense, you're a proverbial pig who can never be made into a beautiful supermodel, let's say. That the only way to fix you, the only way to make your life beautiful is to start over, to be born again. That is offensive. And you see, to receive the Holy Spirit, there's no other way than to admit that to admit your need for the Holy Spirit, and then to come under the offense of the cross of Christ. Jesus died so that you could be born again. Someone had to die to pay for the way that you've used your lower powers to gain at other people's expense, the way you've used your intellect to destroy other people at times, your power to oppress someone, your business acumen to hoard wealth, your communication skills to shade the truth, your imagination to use other people's bodies for your pleasure, and so on and so forth. Someone had to pay for all of that, and Jesus is the one who did it, who paid for that at the cross so that you could be born again. But to be born again, to receive the Holy Spirit, you first have to come under the offense of that very cross. And what makes that so difficult is human pride. Human pride. Let me just close with this question. Where are you? Have you been born again? Like maybe you've been coming to church for a long time and, and somebody might have asked you before today, they might have said, you know, are you a Christian? You said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just said, well, are you one of those born again Christians? No, 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 I'm not a born again Christian. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I, you know, do you understand today that there is no such thing as a Christian who's not born again? There are only born again Christians and then people who aren't Christians. Have you been born again? Have you come under the offense of the cross of Christ? Is there anything that I've said this morning that has caused, I don't know, maybe just something inside of you that clicked to say that, yeah, I've recognized all of my life that there's something that's not there. There's something that's missing in my life. That thing that is missing, that person that is missing is the Holy Spirit, the light and the life of God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And if you... Maybe you've never come under the offense of the cross of Christ. Maybe you've never recognized that you you came into this world dead, darkened, not alive in the way that Adam and Eve were, not alive in the way that God means to be alive, without the breath of life in you, without the Holy Spirit in you. 
If you've never come under the offense of the cross of Christ, if you've never, never acknowledged that you haven't been born again, today would be a great day to do that in the privacy of your seat. But it's going to take humility. You're going to have to humble yourself. And you're going to have to acknowledge there's a huge chasm between me and God that I can't possibly fill. I need to be born again. I need the Holy Spirit. And the way to do that is just simply to say, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Now breathe the breath of life into me this morning, today. And the Bible says that if you do that, that Jesus will indeed do that. He will breathe the breath of life into you and you will be made new. You will be born again. Our Lord Jesus, you know, I recognize that there are people in this room today who know much of what I've talked about, but perhaps aren't really cognizant of the role that the Holy Spirit plays in their life. Or would you bring that throughout this series? Would you make us more and more and more aware of the role that the Holy Spirit plays and the power that comes with the Holy Spirit and the way that the Holy Spirit transforms human beings? And then, Lord, for those who are here today that have never, they've never received the Holy Spirit, they've never been born again, Lord, would you give them this morning the humility to come under the offense of the cross of Christ? And that today would be a day that is like, a, it's a watershed day where they're born again. And that today you would begin to change their lives as, you've made, as you make them alive for the first time. Lord, I pray these things now in Christ's name.